Welcome to the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. We're dispensing stories of success from across the continuum of care. I'm your host, Hillary Blackburn. Thanks for joining us to learn from leaders throughout the pharmacy industry. Hey listeners, a lot's been happening in the biosimilar space with two new approvals for interchangeability. And if you want to catch up on all that's happening there, stay tuned for this episode that's coming up. All right, so today we have a special guest on the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. Our guest is Sonia Osqui, who is a PharmD with um, her BCMAS DPLA. Uh, she can share more about all of the different designations. Um, and Sonia uh, joined Cardinal Health in June of 2020 to lead the company's biosimilar strategy. She most recently served as the Vice President of Innovation and Digital Health at Premier, where she led their national biosimilar strategy on behalf of 4,000, where she partnered with pharmaceutical manufacturers and providers to create resources and education to help health system stakeholders evaluate and adopt biosimilars. Sonia is an established thought leader with numerous publications and currently serves on the board of advisors for the Center for Biosimilars, and she holds a doctor of pharmacy degree from Belmont University College of Pharmacy. Uh, Sonia, welcome to the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And now that our listeners have heard a little bit about your background, maybe you can fill in any gaps from that intro or share a little bit about your personal life. Sure. Well, thank you so much. And, I, and that was a very kind um, opening and you covered <laughs> almost all of it. So uh, yes, I'm a pharmacist. I did, you know, postgraduate residencies, PGY1 and PGY2 and health system pharmacy admin and leadership uh, and quickly became fascinated with the space of biosimilars. And this is a right around the time that the first one was about to be approved in the U.S., and if you look at any top drug expenditure list, as we know, we're, we're seeing mm-hmm. biologics. So huge, huge opportunity in, in addressing these rising healthcare costs and the increasing affordability and accessibility to critical treatment. So I had very early passion on mm-hmm. this space and then had the opportunity to join organizations like Premier to create and lead the strategy there and now at Cardinal Health. And so here at Cardinal Health, I would say a gut reaction often is to think wholesaler, distributor, but really this organization is a much broader healthcare services company and distribution is, while at its core, we have products and solutions that's really aimed at supporting overall healthcare delivery and improving the lives of people every day, as is our mission. So we serve nearly 90% of U.S. hospitals, more than 29,000 U.S. pharmacies, and more than 10,000 specialty physician offices and clinics. So for me, this was a really exciting opportunity to come to an organization that has such a significant footprint in the U.S. and find ways to maximize the value of biosimilars. So that's what brought me here and what I'm focused on. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, And so, Sonia, just to kind of back up to, you know, credentials and things, people... um, uh, may be interested in, you know, kind of that uh, certification pathway and how that maybe helps in your current role. Sure. Yes. Yeah. So um, as you read my 
my credentials. So BCMAS is board certified medical affairs specialist. Mm -hmm. And then DPLA is Diplomat of Pharmacy Leadership Academy, which is the program, uh, of course, that ASHP has to to really uh, strengthen leadership skills in pharmacy practice. So the exposure to these different types of training and education have really helped enable me to practice the work that I'm doing today and understand the different, I would say, priorities and influencers of different healthcare stakeholders. The board, the medical affairs training I found was very um, beneficial because it was beyond pharmacy. I mean, it included device and just FDA approval processes and manufacturing processes. So you get an appreciation of how these products are evaluated for approval to be used in the U.S. Um, And of course, I'm a big advocate of any type of program that could help further expose pharmacists to other pharmacy leaders and leaders in the industry to just learn um, and, and be and develop strong mentors with. So these trainings, I think, have really helped me from just a more exposure standpoint of being surrounded by those that I always consider much smarter than me. <laughs> mm. Well, it's uh, it's always important to never stop learning. Uh, so you know that is part of the the pharmacist's oath is uh, that right. commitment uh, to lifelong learning, and so. It's great to see that, you know, even you've never stopped doing that even past pharmacy school. And uh, they certainly do help to, um, you know, grow and, and expand those skills. So you uh, are, are one of the, the leaders on biosimilars uh, in the country and, you know, have an a important position uh, with Cardinal. Uh, and Cardinal, of course, um, is one of the largest uh, wholesale distributors in the country and and has a lot of other services uh, that they now offer. But um, tell us, you know, what, what let, well, maybe let's back up a little bit and kind of jump into what are biosimilars and then maybe um, Cardinal's role in uh, education and, and, you know, kind of that space. Yeah, sure. So I could start off with just talking about what these products are. And so biosimilars are FDA approved biologics that are highly similar to existing biologics that are on the market. And so you could think of this in the way of branded generics, when we think of small molecule chemical drugs, this is essentially the same um, relationship for biologics, but biologics are made from living cells. So it's really impossible to make identical copies like you can with brand and generics with chemical products. So the best you ultimately can do when you have a branded biologic is to create a highly similar version of that biologic, hence the term biosimilar. So that is what these products are. And the reason why they're so critical uh, in, in healthcare is what I briefly mentioned earlier is that the top drug expenditure in the U.S. and quite frankly in the globe, is occupied by the category of biologics. Mm -hmm. So biosimilars are really key that once the patent expirations or the exclusivity periods of these biologics, the branded biologics end, the biosimilars are the path to bringing competition to these critical and very costly treatment options to increase competition, lower costs, and enhance accessibility for patients that need this product, um, both domestically and worldwide. So it's a huge, in my opinion, a huge tool 
to addressing a lot of the healthcare costs and challenges that we continue to hear about every day. Mm-hmm. Now, from a carnal health standpoint, because of where we sit in the market, we really interact with multiple stakeholder types from um, providers and pharmacies and pharmacists and health systems and community practices, and even with payers and even life science companies and the manufacturers are in the space. So like we mentioned, it's a, a big company with great uh, capabilities that support different aspects of healthcare delivery. So because of where we sit in our engagement with all these different stakeholder types, education is a really core part of our overall biosimilar strategy and making sure that all the stakeholders have the tools they need to effectively evaluate and adopt the biosimilars where it's going to make sense. So not only do we create uh, educational material and resources, but we also facilitate peer-to-peer knowledge sharing amongst the networks that we have, because who better to learn from than those that are doing it? So we want to encourage that and help serve as a catalyst for peer-to-peer learning as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Um, and so, you know, let's talk a little bit about the the regulatory uh, approval process. So, um, you know, you mentioned the introduction of biosimilars can help to to bring about competition, but there's been a little bit of a barrier to entry in the U.S. Uh, you know, they've mentioned uh, for a number of years. There's not a clear pathway to approval. Um, how you know? We, I think what we've just now seen um, the second biosimilar uh, approval. Uh, you saw you know the the biosimilar for Humira, and now we've got um, Simgly, which is the biosimilar for Lantus. Uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about you know that regulatory process. Why it's been so challenging in the U.S. and what does that look like, you know, in maybe other parts of the world? Yeah, so you're spot on that this year we've had two interchangeable biosimilars approved and we could talk through what that means further. Um, Broadly speaking, to date, now we have 31 FDA approved biosimilars, 20 of them officially on the market, and none of those are interchangeable. So the two that you mentioned is, Mm -hmm. is a milestone year because of those two approvals. But that's right. And when we look at the U.S. market, this is an area where we're not, we're not leading <laughs> when you look mm-hmm. at the world. We're actually behind. If you look at um, beyond our borders, I would say in the EU, for example, they're probably the most seasoned users of biosimilars. They now have 15 years of biosimilar use and over 2 billion patient days of biosimilar experience. So there's definitely unique differences to the U.S. healthcare delivery model that has um, positioned us in the situation that we are today. So Mm. the biosimilar approval pathway was established under the ACA in 2010, and that's when it was enacted. Um, And then we didn't have our first approval until 2015, which was for uh, a Phil Graston biosimilar for supportive care in oncology. And then we had subsequent approvals, majority of them in oncology. So of the 20 that I mentioned are on the market, 17 of them have oncology indications, and the remaining are in uh, immunology or the rheumatology space. But to your point, the reason why it looks different in the types of barriers that we've seen is really multifaceted. And and from a regulatory standpoint, um, the pathway is there, and I would say it's founded on established and strong science. So 
we know the science is is there. Like I mentioned, this is this has been well uh, studied and and used globally. Um, when there's plenty of data behind that, but there are different considerations that have created barriers. So one we could talk about is um, the patent litigation landscape. So in the U.S., biologics, when they're approved, they're granted 12 years of market exclusivity. However, when you look at the products that are uh, lined up to have biosimilar competition, the exclusivity period on the market in some cases is leading up much beyond 12 years, closer to 20 years. And even in one example, uh, could lead to 30 years of market exclusivity. Oh, and that wow. this is also, this is because of the patent, um, the patents placed by the originator biologics on their products that could delay competition from entering the market. And these patents range on, on multiple different assets of these products. And it could be from, does it use a buffer or the way it's administered the device? So there's a lot of things you could do um, in this regard. So that's been, I would say, a big area of focus from a uh, congressional standpoint, even as we've seen this past year, the passing of a bill that's called the Ensuring Innovation Act, which is ultimately intended to ensure that any exclusivity period granted to a product is based on the premise of true innovation and not as a means to delay competition by lower cost alternatives, which could be with biosimilars or generics. So that is one dynamic that could delay the launch of a biosimilar in the U.S. But as we look at more broadly, too, I, I often bucket the considerations for biosimilar adoption. So even when it's on, on the market, you have the clinical, financial, operational considerations for using these products. And so there's still, for example, on the clinical side, um, hesitancy that market research mm -hmm. continues to identify with, for example, switching patients that are on an originator biologic to a biosimilar, mm -hmm. um, especially in some therapeutic areas more so than other, more so in rheumatology than oncology. Oncology, we're seeing fairly strong adoption at this stage. Mm. Um, but it's interesting to see the differences between therapeutic areas as well. And that speaks to the clinical component as well. You could look at different dynamics, for example, in oncology, these could these tend to be more episodic, so you have more new starts in oncology. So for providers who feel more comfortable starting a patient on biosimilar, you have almost a, a bigger window to do so and to get traction with market adoption. However, in rheumatology or immunology, these are often chronic care uh, you know, patients that are on treatments for often even over a decade. And so to really make an impact or movement in immunology with biosimilars, you're going to have more of the transition of patients or going to need more transitioning of patients who may be stable on a, on a biologic to the biosimilar. So there's different dynamics, of course, between these therapeutic areas as well. But like I mentioned, beyond clinical, there's also the financial considerations, which cost, yes, of course, plays a role in it. Um, but more so since primarily these products are administered in the outpatient setting, reimbursement is a huge driver to influence adoption, which is dictated by payer coverage. Um, and then out-of-pocket out costs for patients. So you have all these considerations, of course, for product adoption. I mentioned operational considerations as well, because what we're seeing now, especially with so many products in the oncology space, payers um, may have different formulary preferences. And so if I'm you know, practicing and my patient mix, there's different payer policies that could end up forcing me to carry multiple, if not all, product options. For, for an originator biologic with all the biosimilars. So then you have the inventory management, the PA processes, making sure your EHR is up to date and selecting the right products. So these are all different dynamics around 
biosimilars um, that I think are influencing the adoption trends we see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So going back to the payer, um, how I get drug channels. Uh, we were chatting about that a little bit earlier. And, um, you know, in, in uh, the brief article that, that he was sharing, cur- uh, many commercial payers will adopt the more expensive product instead of the identical but cheaper version. Uh, how does, how, what does that look like? And how do we, um, you know, and that's always due to a lot of the rebates and things. Yeah. What I, I do you have any other insight into kind of the, the market dynamics happening there? Yeah, it's a very, um, big topic, I would say, and very, uh, uh, important one. So thus far, like I mentioned, most of the biosimilars have primarily been, you know, outpatient administered products by providers so under the medical benefit. What we're starting to see now with the approval of insulins as the first one is we're seeing a shift in the biosimilars being built under the pharmacy benefit or part D as in Delta. Um, and what this is doing is exposing, further exposing, I'll say, because this has been in discussions for, for years, but further exposing the dynamics in which the managed care landscape and stakeholders primarily the PBM, influence product decisions and utilization. So that's spot on. Um, I think there, there's still some perverse incentive ingrained in this model where the lowest cost list agent is oftentimes not preferred on a formulary because of the dynamic you just walked through. And so it's very interesting. We're, we're closely um, monitoring and watching this activity with the insulin biosimilars, because like I mentioned the first time, it's it's the pharmacy benefit space. Um, so we could see how uh, PBMs and payers are reacting to them. But even more importantly, it's important to watch this activity now and be engaged with it. Because as we look forward to the pipeline of biosimilars, it's not really in oncology moving forward. It's a lot more of the immunology space, diabetes, even ophthalmology. But for the most part, a lot of the products moving forward that are in the pipeline are going to hit this pharmacy benefit. And most notably, um, all eyes are, are just watching for the year of 2023 when Humira biosimilars come to market. And many of them are anticipated to enter the market. Six of them already FDA approved, at least four more already in development. So seeing how this is playing out with the insulins, I think is going to be important um, in preparation of that activity. Hmm. Uh, and then speak a little bit more on what that looks like uh, from state to state. So, you know, you've got the FDA uh, that has federally approved, you know, these new drugs. And, um, you know, this year, as you've mentioned, has been the first uh, interchangeability, so meaning uh, you could get a prescription for Lantus and fill it with Simgly, uh, whereas in the past you couldn't do that for Basaglar. You know, you get a prescription for, right. for Lantus, can't substitute for Basaglar. So um, tell us a little bit about how that works. Yeah, so this is a very uh, important dynamic to the space as well. So um, your spot on interchangeability designation from uh, an FDA standpoint is a regulatory designation that allows pharmacist level substitution. 
So this is what I would say we're used to and traditionally have seen with branded generics and retail pharmacies, you know, where we could automatically substitute to the generic and dispense that product. So ultimately what this designation allows is for the biosimilars that have the designation to be more, I would say, generic-like in the management um, from a retail pharmacy standpoint. And this is, uh, just like you mentioned, the substitution laws are down to individual state laws. Um, and so each state has laws implemented around interchangeability, and there could be varying requirements, and the requirements could be around documentation or have to notify the provider. Only a handful require to seek permission, I would say, um, I think about four states, to seek permission from the provider before making a substitute, but the rest enable the, I'll say, automatic substitution. Um, and the other requirements are around documentation, notifying the patient, um, and other, I would say, operational aspects like that. But this is a, a huge deal because this is the first time through insulin biosimilars, not only is it the first time that we have a pharmacy benefit, you know, a product built under the pharmacy benefit, but it's the first time we have an interchangeable biosimilar. First time it's we have biosimilars, true biosimilars, in diabetes care for insulin. And it's the first time we have biosimilars that are going to be dispensed at retail pharmacies. So what we're seeing happen now is you have this whole new very strong and powerful stakeholder group with pharmacists, and I may be biased when I say that, but you know, the brilliant pharmacists that we have here and retail pharmacists that are now going to be empowered with potentially influencing biosimilar adoption. Mm -hmm. Now, this is the first time because previously, like I mentioned, the products were more in uh, a physician office or health system outpatient infused products, mm -hmm. but now we're in a place where retail pharmacists will be supporting these products and having conversations with patients. And that's why I would say this is such an important area to strengthen our educational efforts because pharmacists are the medication experts and they can be the biosimilar experts to be able to champion this education process moving forward. Um, and so this is where we have a lot of efforts, even from the work we're doing at Cardinal Health to further support our pharmacist stakeholders to help navigate this for the first time. And so we have a publicly available um, state interchangeability map that can be referenced from anybody can access on Cardinal Health where you could click on each state and understand the interchangeability laws for each one. Um, we're creating educational material, you know, based on, it could be from 101 type of material or toolkits to help support the pharmacies. Um, so taking steps like that. So this is a big deal. And I would say that insulin and specifically is almost a messy area. <laughs> it's a, it's a messy space because we have, We've had authorized generics, you know, with the short-acting insulins. Um, mm -hmm. To your point, we have other, I'll say, alternative brands like Basaglar. And now you're having the entrance of interchangeable biosimilars in the mix. So understanding the differences between all of those are going to be important. And part of the messiness around this is that um, it wasn't until March 2020 that insulins got transitioned to be regulated as biologics by the FDA. So when that transition happened, that opened up the door for new, when new insulins came to market for an, the same molecule as an originator like Atlantis, mm -hmm. those would be, be able to come to market as a biosimilar. And furthermore, the FDA updated guidances specifically for insulin on interchangeability, essentially making it, I'll say, easier to achieve that designation. Mm -hmm. So that's why insulins most likely moving forward, when we have insulin biosimilars, I would expect that these would all be interchangeable insulin biosimilars. 
But that's why I say it, it makes sense that retail pharmacists didn't really have to be as exposed to biosimilars prior to the shift of insulins being managed this way. Mm-hmm. You know, and that is a, a great point about the insulin because that's a medication that has been approved for a, or around for a hundred years. You know, insulin exactly. insulin was first developed in you know the 1920, 1920s, uh, and so it's been around for a hundred years. And we've had uh, right. only three manufacturers that have you know made insulin products. So there really hasn't been any competition in the marketplace. We've seen you know high uh, insulin prices for a while, and there've been a whole. Um, a whole lot of uh, different solutions or proposed solutions to help manage uh, the high cost of managing diabetes and to help patients get relief uh, for, um, you know, managing their disease state. And so, yeah, this, this really can be pretty groundbreaking, but uh, again, just with the introduction of a new medication, there's, all of these behind the scenes factors, uh, that, that, you know, come about within the marketplace because you've got the drug channel of how how everything, the money flows and, um, it's, it's so, um, you know, complex to kind of help figure that out. Well, fascinating. Um, well, that's great. And then tell us a little bit more. So what is the, uh, center for biosimilars? Oh, it's a, to me, it's a fantastic resource and publication. That's part of the, uh, I think it's like prefer like a sister family of AJMC. Um, and I, and I recommend that for anybody who wants to, uh, not only just become more familiar with the dynamics of biosimilars in the U S but stay up to date on the different activities. This is um, really a great forum that's always capturing the latest, greatest uh, breaking news even sometimes around biosimilars. So it's, it's a lot of um, great, I would say, national thought leaders and stakeholders represented represented through the work that group does um, from multiple sites of care. So definitely recommend checking out that site too. Awesome. Well, thank you for, you know, all of the the work that you're doing and, um, you know, definitely uh, can refer listeners to um, Cardinal Health's website, the Center for Biosimilars. Is there anything else that you'd recommend for uh, pharmacists or for others who are looking to learn a little bit more about uh, biosimilars? Um, those would be great. I mean, Cardinal Health's website is very straightforward, cardinalhealth.com slash biosimilars. So as you would expect, we have resources there. That's where the interchangeability map lives okay. um, in case anybody wants to see it directly. Mm-hmm. And then, yes, Center for Biosimilars is great. And then I would even call out um, AAM's Biosimilar Council. Mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. has a nice toolkit, too, for um, building uh Ed, you know, educational confidence and awareness in these products. So th- they have resources as well that I think are, are well done. Um, but absolutely. And I would say, you know, on LinkedIn, we're very active as well. Whenever we create new resources, for example, we just shared a chart with all the adalumumab biosimilars that are approved and in development and the different product characteristics. That's also on our Carnal Health website. But I would say if you want to 
um, stay up to date on the resources we develop too. Feel free to find me on LinkedIn as well and connect. And of course, I'm happy to connect with anybody beyond um, just these resources, but just to network too. Yeah. Fascinating. Uh, well, great. Well, Sonia, um, this was very helpful as we're learning and understanding uh, all that's happening in this space. And something that I love to ask all of our guests is, what is some advice that you would tell your younger self or for others out there who are just getting started in their career? It's a very good question. Um, I mean, this is going to be so simple, but the thing that quickly comes to mind is just ask questions. Mm, <laughs> it's so simple, but ask, don't be afraid that you're asking a dumb question or quite frankly, that the person you're asking is going to, going to know the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, healthcare delivery is so complex in the U.S. So ask questions from as simple as how do these drugs get on our shelves? Why do they cost the price they do? Mm-hmm. Why are we choosing this one over the other? I mean, truly those types of questions I feel like can expose young, you know, younger students or earlier in their career in pharmacy to kind of get a leg up on the business of pharmacy, which is, and, and quite frankly, the business of healthcare mm-hmm. on how it's managed in the U.S. So I think that's a, a very important thing to always do throughout our careers. That's, that is an excellent answer. Uh, there's so many times when I've given presentations to student groups and, you know, you, you pause this in for any questions and there will be none. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm like, wow, did I really answer everything? So, um, <laughs> no, I, I completely agree with that. I, I think that we've got to stay inquisitive. Um, it's all about kind of, uh, fought, you know, challenge the status quo, you know, ask, mm-hmm. ask questions and, and just better understand. Um, there's, you know, even 10 years out and I still don't know, you know, I don't, I don't, I'll always need to continue to learn and better understand all of that. So, um, Sonia, so great. Thank you so much for being a guest on the talk to your pharmacist podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Talk to Your Pharmacist, produced by the Pharmacy Advisory Group. If you liked this episode, let us know by subscribing to the podcast, rating, and reviewing it. Share it with friends. And if you want to be a guest or know a pharmacist leader who has a great story to tell, connect with me, Hillary Blackburn, on LinkedIn and check out our Facebook page, Pharmacy Advisory Group for updates on new podcasts. Thanks for listening.